3: I mean, in terms of a legacy, a lot of the Jarrow marches afterwards were very disillusioned and said it didn't make a heap of the difference and said, you know, that they they should have been more demanding. That was Stuart
4: McConey talking about the Jarrow March of 1936.
0: listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
4: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For today's episode, we've spoken to Stuart McConey, an acclaimed writer and broadcaster who regularly appears on BBC Radio. Stuart is the author of a new book entitled Long Road from Jarrow, A Journey Through Britain Then and Now, which chronicles the events of the famous 1936 march from Tyneside to London and then recreates it in modern Britain. He was interviewed by our production editor, Spencer Mizen. Your
5: new book, it's yeah. called... Long road from Jarrow, a journey through Britain then and now. And am I right in saying it's you retracing the, the footsteps of the Jarrow March in 1936?
3: That's absolutely right, yeah. They they marched from Jarrow, which is just uh, outside Newcastle, although they very definitely feel themselves to be their own town, and very much it is then and now. Uh, steelworkers, unemployed steelworkers, unemployed men, 200 or so of them marched in the October of 1936... From Jarrow to London to to petition Parliament with a with a ten thousand signature petition to petition Parliament to ask for some relief for the town, which was not forthcoming. Which I suppose is a spoiler alert in some way, but that was not forthcoming. But of course, the Jarrow March for many people has taken on this romantic, iconic, even although I hesitate to use that word, sort of significant chapter in British modern social and political history, really, and so. I was surprised that given how obsessed we are with anniversaries as a culture from from famous pop albums to sporting events to tragedies, how, as the 80th anniversary of Jarrow approached, there seemed to be little in the way of, of fuss or palaver about it. And I thought, well, I don't know if, you know, I can't stick around to wait for the 100th anniversary. And I, I, I'm a keen walker, I'm president of. Uh, the ramblers and uh, although I, I must say I would not advise anyone to book a holiday doing this walk because I would I would do the West Highland way or the Cotswold way because while it is fascinating and while it is a journey a really illuminating journey through the different kinds of England there are and I should say I really was were talking about England but it's almost the length and breadth of England and while it's fantastic and illuminating it is not particularly picturesque Um, because it's travelling along major A roads for a lot of it. But yeah, as as, as the time grew nearer, I thought this seems to combine a lot of the things I'm interested in. British travel... Um, British social history, British pop culture even, because Jarrow has a pop cultural resonance as well. You know, even people who don't know what the Jarrow march was, some of them with long memories might remember Alan Price's Jarrow song, which was a big hit in the 70s, or there's been several plays written uh, about it, theatre pieces. Uh, The musician John Miles wrote a musical based on it because his granddad was on the march. Um, So I just just thought it had all these kinds of, of... Resonances too. For nineteen thirty-six and two thousand and sixteen seem to feel very similar to me in lots of ways. We had there was this fractious relationship with Europe in the sense of we 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 were in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote, and lots of the towns I walked through were the towns that had come down for Brexit very firmly to the bewilderment of metropolitan Britain. Um. There was the rise of strongman populism, it seemed, across the world from Trump and Putin to, well, of course, back in 1936, it was Messrs. Hitler, Mussolini and Franco. The Spanish Civil War was going on in 1936 and Europe had this fractious stuff going on in 2016. A conservative government recently returned to power. Now, of course, you've got to remember that British history and politics are moving so quickly that even though I wrote this book a matter of months ago, It's already the British political landscape has changed slightly since then. When I wrote the book, the Conservatives seemed, you know, they were going to be in power for for a generation. The Labour Party were in disarray. I think anyone would, would have to say that. And it's written from that point of view. Now that we still have a Conservative government. I think some people would like to... We, some people seem to be talking as if we've got a Labour government. We don't, and Jeremy Corbyn is still you know, leader of the opposition rather than Prime Minister, but the political landscape has certainly changed since 2016, since late autumn 2016. So that's a very long way of saying a lot of things seem to come together to make me think I'd like to do this March, so I pitched it to my editor and I said I'll I'll go and do it in October I went and did it, I, I traversed their route day by day, exactly the same route as they did, and stayed in the places they did each night. So, so how
5: long did it take
3: you? Exact same as then, 22 days, three weeks. Three weeks. Uh, began on October the 5th in Jarrow and arrived in London at the Houses of Parliament on Halloween.
5: Oh, right, OK. And, and, and did it feel like hard work? Was it quite arduous?
3: Yes and no, which is a my dancer. It was fascinating and it was always absorbing and it was all, I woke up in every morning excited to, to get on with the day because it really was um, a chance to see England up close, you know, up close and personal. I think I got from this what you, no amount of reading of well-intentioned articles even or TV or radio documentaries could give you a kind of first-hand experience of, of England, which I tried to convey in this book. It's it's a book of, I hope it's educational, I hope it's funny, I hope it's entertaining, but I hope it has the whiff of real experience that gives people a feel of England now. Um, it, some of the days were arduous. I mean, as I say, this is not really some of the some of the days are twenty-two miles, and it's twenty-two miles of bashing along, in the uh, in the sort of overgrown margins of busy arterial roads. You know, so you're kicking your way through Red Bull cans and God knows what else, but you do get a fantastic sense of the changing. England, I mean, you start in the Durham coalfields, you start in towns like Chesterle Street and Ferry Hill, former mining towns which very much have the feel, that that hardness and that kind of gritty edge of a mining town. When you started, does London seem a distant place? Absolutely. You, you, we are a very small country, but when you're in Ferry Hill on a cold Tuesday evening, you're a long way from London. You feel a long way from London. And that in itself... I think is insightful and I tried to, or is illuminating. I tried to convey that in the book, that when in the immediate aftermath of Brexit, a great deal of the commentariat, particularly the London-based commentariat, or even the major city-based commentariat, even the people who, you know, writing from maybe Bristol or Edinburgh or Manchester even, they seemed baffled and bewildered by what Northern Britain, let's say, had done, uh, Northern England had done. I you get a flavour of absolutely why when you walk that walk because Ferry Hill and Chester Street and Jarrow itself, all of whom voted to leave, as did Wakefield. um, They feel... They, you get the sense that there is a feeling amongst some of the post-industrial people there uh, in terms of people who have seen their communities and industries absolutely, well, uh, destroyed, if not changed out of all recognition. You do get a feeling that however misguidedly they were laying some kind of misguided punch on metropolitan England. You know, that they were saying, you have abandoned us, you don't understand us and you don't care about us. You care about lots of other people and lots of other things, but it doesn't seem the the poor people of Ferry hill or whatever or the the unemployed of some of these northern towns i i could you began to get a sympathy when i say sympathy you may never one may never agree with what they did but i certainly could you know has, could certainly could share some of the mood Sorry. i think yeah do you think the difference between
5: um, somewhere like Jarrow and London is more salient now than it was back in 1936, or do you think it, it, it existed then as well?
3: It's a very good question. Uh, the The differences the differences themselves are different, but I think they 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 remain constant. 1936 the I don't think some of the people in the south of England and, and they said this but there's documentary evidence of people even in 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 you know people in Northampton and Bedford when they met the General Marchers and the General Marchers shared with them tales of their hometown they they said well we find it hard to believe anyone really was living like this but now we believe you because we you know you seem sincere people like um, Priestley went to Jarrow just before the Jarra March, and he said that you would assume if you came from another planet that it was some kind of penal colony or some kind of some kind of hell reserved for people who'd been very wicked because he assumed that no one would want to see people live like this thin-faced ashen faced men and children and women on the streets begging for food in a modern industrial country um and and even then and now, you you walk you leave the Durham coalfield and you get into Yorkshire. And rural North Yorkshire back in 1936 was quite comfortably off. Agriculture was not suffering in the same way that traditional heavy industries were. So the steel towns were badly hit and the mining towns were badly hit and the, the iron-working towns were badly hit. Um, but agriculture was still then and now, I think, through a combination of government protection and simply economic factors, the rural areas of North Yorkshire, like Ripon and Harrogate uh, and North Allerton were quite comfortably off, and so they—they too. They t- and then you get into South Yorkshire, and Leeds and Wakefield, even were not quite suffering like Jarrow did because of the very particular industries involved. And so, Britain—the differences remain for a for a small country. You, you find like, extraordinary differences there were then and now. And certainly, as I walked along, when I got to the middle of England, Northamptonshire, what I call the old weird England, which sort of still feels, some of those market towns, you still feel like you could be walking through civil war battlefields. Then you, get to, then you get to Bedford and meet the Italian community. And that's a brilliant example of a modern, how immigration has changed Britain. Then when you get to, but when you get to St Albans, you only need to look in Radlitz or St Albans in an estate agent's window to realise you are a long way from Ferry Hill and Jarrow.
5: Could you give me, say, two or three highlights from, from from the walk? What memories will stay with you for the longest?
3: Um, when I got to Leeds, which I, I love Leeds. I'm a big personal fan of Leeds. I think it's one of the most exciting, vibrant British cities. And when I when I got to Leeds, um, I thought to myself, the Jarrow marchers were reliant on, to a degree, on hospitality. They had cooks and they, they could make themselves kind of very meagre rations on the road. They, they would occasionally make themselves like a sort of broth but mainly it was sandwiches and they relied on hospitality. And in some towns, they were given quite Spartan hospitality, but elsewhere, as in Leeds, they were absolutely fated by the town council in Leeds, a conservative town council, interestingly. They were given a slap-up banquet at the town hall and given beer and hot pot and Paddy, the dog that went with them, drank his water from a silver tureen. So I was thinking, what if they were travelling now, how could they gain any hospitality? And one of the obvious things I thought of was the Sikh community because a major thing that's changed since then is we have a very well-established Sikh community in Britain and one of the principles of, of Sikhism, as evidenced in their gudwaras, their temples, is hospitality. I don't know if people know, but the Sikh temple has an industrial kitchen running 24 hours a day to feed the traveller on the road, to give them sustenance and hospitality, providing they are not drunk and they are respectful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I went to a gudwara in Beeston, in Leeds, and had a fantastic time, having I mean, been treated with some initial, I think, suspicion when a bloke in a rucksack and a flat cap turns up. I had a wonderful time. A fantastic young man called Indapal showed me round. I was introduced to some classical musicians, Indian classical musicians who were there. It was lovely. It was in, it's in Beeston, which is, I think, I. I, I with apologies to the people of Beeston, is a fairly grim ex-industrial suburb of Leeds. But the warmth of this place was fabulous. I had fabulous food, and I did think, you know, the 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 way that immigration has changed working-class communities more than probably anywhere else, and I think that's a lot to do with the Brexit vote as well. But here, as in Bedford, which was another highlight, were um, in the 1940s and 50s, part, part is a result of the utter destruction of Italy after the Second World War economically, and part of our need for a labour force here... We invited hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of Italian young men to come and work in Bedford at the brickworks. And what this means now is that you can, as I did in Bedford, you know, get great proper um, Italian pizza and go to an, and go drinking grappa with Italians in a club late at night in a in a bar festooned with pictures of Paolo Rossi and, and Gianni Riva. and, and it, it's fantastic. And those were two great examples. Even though in both cases, you know, there's still an element of, you know, I think there was still an element even in the Italian community of some people saying we were brought here almost as slaves, my mum and dad. But it's just you realise that like the Polish community in Wakefield, that immigration has has changed our country uh, in all kinds of, of dynamic and brilliant ways. But that said... There are associated difficulties about housing and about sustainability and about infrastructure. And it always seems to have been those communities have asked to been the brunt of that and then sort of left to their own devices. And you can understand why some of them, slightly bewildered and slightly reeling from very quick changes to their communities, have said, hang on, why you know, and that I think that is a contributive factor to Brexit. Again, I am not I am not saying that I agree with that vote. I'm saying that to simply sit in London and say, you people are all racists, you people are all idiots, you know. I, I, that, was the, that seemed to me to be the, the chief thrust of the Remain campaign. And I think that's why it failed. Sure. Going
5: back to the, the, the Jarrow march yourself, when did you first become aware of the Jarrow march?
3: It was one of those things that I think growing up, uh, my like my granny would mention it. I'd hear references to it on the radio or in the telly and things like that. And then I'd probably when I was a very small, when I was like a probably 10 or 11, Alan Price had this catchy hit called Jarrow Song, uh, and um, which... And I remember them thinking, you know, what is this all about? And you see those, these images of gaunt men in flat caps marching along. And I knew romantically, because my grandmother would talk about it romantically, all oh, these brave men from Jarrow and those poor men from Jarrow. So I think particularly in working class Northern England, it has this sort of romantic iconography. And I was interested in not... I didn't want to just go along with that and run with it. I wanted to actually, you know, address it, because in many ways it was a failure. Uh, it failed in that they were, um, at that time in 1936, hunger marches were very prevalent in in Britain, largely communist inspired by the National Union of Unemployed Workers. And they were much more, they were bigger uh, and they were much more uh, emphatically political and ideological than the Jarrah March. The Jarrah March from the word go, from the people who organised it, the councillors and the mayor who organised it, were very, very keen that this was seen as an apolitical march. So there are crucial things like they didn't call it a hunger march because, quote, that didn't sound very nice. They called it a crusade. They were very keen on getting these kind of slightly religious elements to it. At one point, there was talk of them carrying a cross at the front of it. So you can see that they're very keen. The Labour Party and the trade union movement washed their hands of them, absolutely refused to have anything to do. So petrified were they of any taint of communism... Uh, uh, you know, uh, that's interesting to compare this down the years. They were so keen not to be seen as stridently left-wing that they had nothing to do. Uh, Ramsey MacDonald, the hapless Ramsey MacDonald, would have nothing to do with them, neither would the TUC, and this despite the best efforts of the Jarrow MP who led the march, Ellen Wilkinson, Red Ellen, who was an incredible woman and a force of nature on the then left wing of the Labour Party, who, who basically was a lone voice saying, uh, trying to get some kind of official support. That, I think, is why they were often so warmly received in conservative areas. That's why the sometimes it was conservative councils like like Harrogate and Leeds that treated them so warmly and received them so warmly because they were keen to be seen to be being warm and active and hospitable where the Labour Party weren't, where the Labour Party were running skirts. So there was a bit of politics involved in there, a bit of spin. Um... So I'd always been aware of Jarrow as a word and its connotations of suffering. And, you know, it's one of those words, you say Jarrow, it's like rickets, diphtheria. You know, it's it's got all these gloomy connotations in the and, 1930s.
5: And so that suffering was triggered by the closure of, of the shipyard in Jarrow, is that right? Um,
3: this, the, Jarrow was pretty much run as a personal fiefdom back at the time by someone called Charles Mark Palmer, who ran Palmer's shipyard and was also a bigwig politically in the town. And this thing, this, this uh, astonishing thing happened to the town where, through no fault of their own, through overproduction, the shipping industry went into decline in Britain, or the ship right industry went into decline. So it was decided in order to keep and these are, you know, I stress in the book. These are economic and political decisions. They're sometimes presented as if they're in the natural order, like the tides, you know, or or whatever. But or the weather. Someone decided that in order to keep profits high for the shipyards, we should close some in order to keep demand uh, to keep supply low. And poor old Jarrow was one of the ones that was closed. Well, Jarrow Jarrow Steelworks employed most of the time's men. So you were effectively. Well, it's in the ringing phrase that Ellen Wilkinson used for the title of her book, The Town That Was Murdered. A quite deliberate political decision was taken to close the shipyard in order to keep profits high elsewhere. And, um, and what the really interesting thing that was done by, the I think a board called something like the National Securities Council, which is a fascinatingly ironic title, not only did the shipyard close, they said that no new shipyard could be built there for 40 years in order to keep profits high in the in them. Um, of course, what happened was three years after Jarrow, we're at war and we have to go and buy some ships from the Belgians because we're not making enough. Um, and I'll put it like that, that sounds very, very sort of uh, uh, stridently left wing. I don't mean it to, I just mean, I think it was just simply uh, Ellen Wilkinson's point is not so much that it was ideologically wicked as it was just a stupid decision. It was short-sighted and stupid. I think there's an element of that as much as any element of wickedness. Um, And so what happens is the Jarrow men, the the coal mining industry has gone into decline, Palmer shipyards, uh, Palmer shipyards closing. It's interesting if you go to Jarrow now, the statue of Charles Mark Palmer is far more prominent in the town centre than the Jarrow men. It's interesting how I would notice this, that public statuary often celebrates the the great and the good, even when they've not been that great or good towards the towns. Um, And... And they went, they said, they had a public meeting. Just to give you quickly the genesis of it, they had a public meeting in which someone said, what should we do? Let's get a petition. Let's petition them to build us a steelworks. And then at least we can have some work in the town. And someone shouted from the public gallery, let's march down with it. So very quickly, this was decided to be done. They marched down with the signatures. Uh, The idea was that they'd be received by Stanley Baldwin in parliament and the petition would be heard that didn't happen. I don't want to spawn one end in the end of my book, but I set out to succeed where they failed. And I do, in a, in a, very, in a very touching and, and kind of ironic way. Now,
5: what would you say was the original march's most significant achievement? I mean, it, it sounds like they, they were dismissed from a lot of quarters um, at the time and in the immediate aftermath. But it's got quite a, a, a rich, as you've said, a, quite a rich legacy. What, why is
3: that? That's that's interesting. It was very well publicised. This is uh, this is something that we can't forget. I think some of the, if some of the other marches at the time, less well organised, less well spun PR wise. It was very well organised from a media point of view. There were two embedded journalists. What we would now call embedded journalists. There were there were two journalists who walked with them, who presented did daily almost daily dispatches to the Manchester Guardian and other places. They had a kind of media committee so that they would inform towns that they were getting to that were going, what time they were going to arrive. Simple things like that. They were, um, they had this dog that they'd found, and that made for a great deal of fantastic human interest stories. They were led by Ellen Wilkinson. So you've got these 200 gaunt men led by this, the mighty atom, as she was patronisingly called, you know, this red-headed firebrand tiny petite female mp it, it it looked it had it was very photogenic it happened to coincide almost by the day with the beginning of BBC television, and um, th- there's a lot of theories that said the BBC has seemed obsessed with Jarrah down the years. There's about four or five TV documentaries about Jarrah, <laughs> hilariously presented by people like Michael Patillo and Bernard Dingham, uh, and and but there does seem to be an obsession. And some people think it's because our, our, the BBC and Jarrah's sort of origin stories are bound up. You know what I mean? They 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 started within weeks of each other. It's a very it was a very good very sort of easy protest for the establishment to enjoy they didn't throw any bricks like the suffragettes they didn't they didn't demand anything particularly outrageous they were pliant in many ways they kept up this thing about the crusade so it was a very well spun thing from that point of view and as for its length, I think that's the reason it's it's clung onto memory so much it's a good word jarrow it's direct it's a it's a good slogan uh, there are all these plays and I mean our friends in the north begins with a reference to the Jarrow March. So it it lives on very much in the iconography and the mythos of of English modern social and political history, particularly for Northerners. And as well as that, I mean in terms of a legacy a lot of the Jarrow marches afterwards were very disillusioned and said it didn't make a heap of the difference and said, you know, that they, they should have been more demanding. And But Matt Perry, who's a, an academic, who's there's very much, very little literature about the Jarrow march. I think mine is something like the third book to be written about it. And the the only other detailed look about it, and it's a fantastic book, which I recommend to people first and foremost, before mine even, uh, is, is Matt Perry's book uh, about uh, Jarrow, in which he says, and I asked him this question, I said, well, what? wasn't it a waste of time? And he said, no, because the point of it is the fact that we're talking about it means it wasn't a waste of time. Because you can deny people the, the future they want, as the Jarrow men were. They were denied the future they wanted for their town in terms of prosperity and aesthetic it works. But you can't deny people their past. And I think that's very important. And so as long as Jarrow remains talked about it, and perhaps remains symbolic of defiance of human endeavor because they were very keen that the men weren't seen as feckless. You know, the idea was we'll march. Gotta remember a lot of these guys were first World War veterans, a Boer War veteran in one case. They, these guys the idea was we're going to march all the way to show people that we're not idle, we're not feckless, we're capable of hard work and endurance and fortitude. And and I think Jarrow's become a watchword for that. And and so whenever protest and dissent, and this is the theme very much of the closing section of the book, Britain is a country, England is a country whose roots are as much in protest and dissent and argument as they are in consensus and Concord and all those things. And I think Jarrow as a as a metaphor for honorable dissent, it will, will still be used, will still be a touchstone for future you know political movements and future political causes. Actually, as you mentioned that, can you envisage any circumstances in which such a march could happen today? Well, that's interesting because as i as I wrote the book marching, or certainly assembling, was back on the agenda. This was very much part of um, Jeremy Corbyn's new mood in the Labour Party. And for, for good or ill, I mean, I used to have arguments with people who would say to me, Jeremy Corbyn's got, you know, 5,000 people have come to see him in Liverpool. Ergo, the Labour Party will win the next election. Now, that, that's rather like saying 45,000 people came to see Liverpool play last week at Anfield. Ergo, they will win the Premiership because the, you know, preaching, exercising the converted is not necessarily the case. So there were lots of marches. Marching as a political tactic seemed to have come back on the agenda, demonstrations, marches. And I wondered about the efficacy of that. And I mentioned in the book, Jarrow didn't do anything. Will these do anything for those people who want them to do something, those supporters of that cause? I don't know. Clearly, something has changed in the last few months because clearly the, the, the election shows that there is some there are some parts of the electorate, particularly the young, who have been energised by certain ideas on the left of the Labour Party. Is that about marching, or is that about very astute use of social media? I don't know. But, it, you know, in a way, maybe social media is a kind of marching. That's just occurred to me now. Maybe maybe, maybe social media is the marching, is the maybe Jaro marches now. Maybe they'd do a thread. Maybe they'd have an Instagram account. Maybe they'd cause a Twitter storm. I don't know. But but certainly, it seems that that old, very old-fashioned idea of the march and the placard and the public meeting which were massively popular as platforms in the 30s, certainly, I think, have come back and were very prevalent in the October of last year when I wrote this book. So it's interesting that, you know, as people say, you know, history is cyclical. Things never really disappear forever.
5: Um, did, did your walk change your view of England and Britain?
3: Um, if it didn't completely change it, it absolutely confirmed in me some feelings that I'd had growing, and some of them I've, I've mentioned a little earlier. Um, the feeling that I think the ordinary working people of ordinary, particularly northern post-industrial towns, had been enormously poorly treated by the media and the Remain campaign in the Brexit vote. I think there'd been... I read an article by... I read a piece by Adam Schatz in the London Review of Books just afterwards, which I thought summed this up beautifully. One ringing sentence uh, from the point of view of the metropolitan elite, to use that horrible word. He'd said... Um, we have found it easier to hate than, than to persuade. And I thought that was absolutely true. I had heard very little. And when I spoke to people and I asked them about how, what, are, you know, the Remain campaigns in their town or the Brexit campaigns in their town, they told me that hardly anyone had come to them and said, no, this is what the European Union is doing for you and this is the benefits. And there was no, there was simply abuse. There was simply, no, if you don't get this, you're a fool and even worse, you're a racist. And I began to understand that indignation. I really began to understand that indignation. I mean, spent long days and nights walking through those times. And I also began very much to come to the conclusion that like I could do at the end of the book, that the pe- people appeals for consensus and uh, uh, to be a nation at ease in its own skin and all those clichés well yes to an extent i mean and the joe cox murder obviously is that features heavily in the book for reasons you, people can read the book and find out why and obviously that kind of horrifying social division is not something to be celebrated or even tolerated but we are not the swiss we're not necessarily a docile and pliant nation either. The General March shows that. The General March was an act, however mildly, of defiance. And I think to have a country that's permanently engaged in a sort of good-natured argument with itself is no bad thing as long as we respect each other and as long as it doesn't become into violence or abuse but i think to have a nation that we are rooted in this from the suffragettes to the kinder trespass we are slightly rooted in saying oh hang on a minute Uh, and maybe and the jarum march is part of that and and some of those traditions of dissent and constructive argument are are to be celebrated i think rather than you know pushed under the carpet so i mean
5: did, did the experience fill you with optimism or, or foreboding for the future of our country?
3: I guess it's a bit of both. A bit of both, but massive optimism because I have a great abiding faith in the English people and the British people. You you know, yes, there are one or two people. There are, there are trolls on social media and there are fools, but this has always been the case. What you find if you walk among them for any amount of time is that they are hardworking, brave, fair, honest... Up for a good time, which is a great thing and something to be celebrated. As I, you know, you walk you walk you walk you go into Leeds on a Tuesday night and, you know, it puts London on a Tuesday night to shame, I would have to say, in a very partisan way. The streets are thronged with people going to the opera, going to restaurants, going to readings and films. I just I, I, you know, I, I, not foreboding really at all. I, I felt that this was very much, you know, this mongrel nation with its infinite capacity for argument and, and good humoured debate and, and, and having a good time and working hard and playing hard and all those cliches. I think things, got, things don't, they sound like romantic cliches, but things don't get to become cliches without a grain of truth. And I, I certainly was filled with a kind of, um, a kind of optimism for the country.
5: And do you think that um, people were, in essence, very similar um, in the 1930s as they are in 2017?
3: I think they probably were. I think you read people's interviews, and when, once you've put aside the slight differences in figures of speech and mannerisms, I think they were. They are canny and cautious. You read, you know, you read what the, the organisers of the Jarrow March uh, was saying, and you could very much imagine Alistair Campbell's Labor Party saying very much the same thing about we were t- we talking about spin, about presenting this in a way that won't offend, well, you know, then it was not offending the Beaver Brooks and the Press Barons of the day. It was Rupert Murdoch in the New Labour era. But very much this idea of we had spin then, we had propaganda then, we had astute political theorists then, we had hard working and decent people then, and we had liars and fools then. It you know, it was ever thus really.
5: Why do people need to know about the gyro moratorius today, if you could give one sort of one reason?
3: Well, because history, and I'm, you know, as a big fan of this podcast and the magazine, as your magazine and podcast proof, history is not just about kings and queens. I, I like nothing more. You know, like everyone else, I'm seduced by colourful tales of the Tudors and such like. But there's a whole other bit of history that's not, that's about more, more modern history and more ordinary history. And I think, you know, Jarrow is as much a part of, our, you know, romantic myth, uh, or whatever, you know, epic failure, romantic failure, or fantastic symbol of human spirit. It is as much as part of our uh, our, our shared history and culture as, you know, Wolf Hall or, you know, or Jane Austen or whatever. And I think to celebrate that multiplicity of our, our, our histories, maybe not our history, our histories, I think it's important that we know that, you know, history is um, a vast and entertaining kind of tapestry, and Jarrow's a thread in that. That was
4: Stuart McConney. Long Road from Jarrow, A Journey Through Britain Then and Now is out now in the UK and the US, published by Ebery. And you can listen to Stuart every weekday from 1pm to 4pm on BBC Radio 6 Music.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match
2: That's betterhelp.com H-E-L-P, slash history extra.
4: And now it's time for this week's History News with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans.
6: The British Museum will take part in a European summit to discuss the return of hundreds of bronze artefacts which were taken from West Africa in the late 19th century. The antiquities, known as the Benin Bronzes, were looted in 1897 by a British military expedition after Benin Kingdom now in southern Nigeria, imposed customs duties which defied the British Empire. John Picton, a professor at Soas University of London and a former curator of the National Museum in Lagos, told The Guardian that while the artefacts were indisputably lifted and it can be argued that they should be returned to West Africa, quote, "...the rival story is that it is part of world art history and you do not want to take away African antiquity from somewhere like the museums in Paris or London." because that leaves Africa without its proper record of antiquity. The artefacts under negotiation include a bronze sculpture of a cockerel that adorned a Cambridge University dining room and the cast bronze head of a young woman believed to be Benin's Queen Idia. In other news, the remains of Greenwich Palace, the birthplace of Henry VIII and his daughters Mary and Elizabeth I, have been discovered beneath the old Royal Navy College in Greenwich, south-east London a team working on a development beneath the college site found two rooms, believed to have been kitchens or laundries, in the Tudor Palace, which was demolished in the 17th century. One room features a lead-glazed tile floor, while the other had wall cavities which may have housed beehive baskets. A representative for Historic England described the rooms as a remarkable find. Meanwhile, three tombs which might date back 2,000 years have been unearthed in southern Egypt. The sarcophagi and burial holes found inside the tombs are many different shapes and sizes and are believed to have contained the remains of men, women and children of different ages. Ali al-Bakri, head of the mission, told the BBC that this may mean the tombs were part of a large cemetery for a city over a long period of time, rather than a military garrison, as some have suggested. The tombs were likely constructed between the 27th dynasty – founded in 525 BC, and the Greco-Roman era, which lasted between 332 BC and the 4th century AD.
4: Now, for more of the latest goings-on in history, you may well want to check out our September issue, which has just gone on sale in the UK. Inside this month's edition, we have articles on Viking battles, the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, medieval Europe's unholiest monk, and a whole lot more. Look out for our September issue in all good news agents and supermarkets and in our many digital formats. Well, that's about it for today, but please do join us again on Monday where we'll be discussing the history of the book.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at and we might read out your messages in future editions.